book of the month. Follow the link to buy your copy. During the months of July and August, we'll be looking at John Knox, Scotland's reformer. If you'd like to learn more about John Knox, and there is a lot to learn, there's plenty of resources online. And if you prefer books, a good starting point is an excellent little primer, John Knox, Fearless Faith, by Stephen Lawson. It's just 100 pages, and it's packed with fast-moving information about Knox. And there's a link to buy the book on www.semper-reformata.com throughout July and August. Just follow the link in the episode notes. The book costs just £5.49. A small part of that goes to support this podcast. The Book of the Month, John Knox, Fearless Faith, by Stephen Lawson. Welcome to the Semper Reformatic Podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. A few years ago, there was a whole host of books being written on the subject of heavenly tourism in America, where else? People that had died and allegedly gone to heaven and come back and were describing their experiences in, in books, that, some of which became bestsellers. There was one particular book written on behalf of a young child, a boy who had died on an operating table, some hospital, and allegedly had gone to heaven and had returned and had talked about it, and his father published a book on his behalf, which became a bestseller. And it's strange how gullible Christians are. They seem to just soak up everything. After a while, some years had passed, the young chap himself, who was the subject of the book, actually said it was all untrue, that his father had prompted him, that he was only, what, six years old or something. He'd never been to heaven at all. He simply had been on the operating theatre and, and, and had been brought round by the doctors, and he denied that he'd ever said those things. It was words that were put into his mouth. And the publisher was asked to withdraw the book. Now, whether they did or not, I, I don't know. But as I say, it shows how gullible Christians are. When we read the book of Revelation, we're not seeing John going into heaven and coming back. What we're seeing is symbolism. We're seeing him being given a vision. And the vision is entirely symbolic. When you read Revelation, you're reading a book that is written in the style of Jewish apocalyptic literature. It's not history like the book of Acts. It's not poetry like the Psalms. It's not didactic. It's not teaching like Romans. It's not literal. It is made up of symbolism. And it's very important that we understand that when we come to this passage in Revelation 6, verse 9 to 11. There are important symbols. 
And we will see that these important symbols, as with all the important symbols in Revelation, have an Old Testament background. And we must interpret them in that way. So for a few minutes this evening, we're going to look at this passage, just verse by verse. And we're going to see the position of the martyrs. And we're going to see the plea of the martyrs. And we're going to see the peace of the martyrs. These are martyrs from every age. Remember my scheme of revelation may be slightly different from yours. That's okay. You can disagree with me on that. There's no harm done. My scheme of revelation, of course, sees revelation as a series of overlapping scenes, each one going further into time, each one beginning right back at the beginning of the church age and working its way right up to the last judgment. And later on in the year, God willing, if I'm allowed to, um, I'd maybe try and talk to you a little bit more about the structure of Revelation and the apex, the climax of Revelation. We'll talk about that maybe later. Let's see the position of the martyrs. Let's look at verse 9. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God for the testimony which they held. And just keep your eye on that first. Don't look at me. What do you see? What is John seeing in this part of his vision? He's seeing an altar, an Old Testament altar, a structure where animals are bound and ritually slaughtered. And below the altar are souls. Again, that's symbolic. You can't see a soul. It's a spirit. And these souls have been slaughtered. They are the souls of dead people who have been slaughtered because they are Christians. Now let's think about that for a moment. Let's ask two questions. The first question is, why did these people die? Why were these people, these martyrs, Executed, And the Bible itself here, the very text of the scripture, gives us two reasons. Let's see what they are. You're still looking at the verse. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them, here's the first reason, that were slain for the word of God. And here's the second reason, for the testimony of which they held. Two reasons. Let's take the easy one first. They were slain for their testimony. They had a testimony of saving faith in Christ. Now, just to make such a profession in John's day would be to put yourself at risk of death. The Romans, as far as religion was concerned, the Romans were actually pretty tolerant. They didn't care who you worshipped, just so long as you worshipped Caesar. That would require just putting a tiny little pinch of incense on a fire, maybe once a year if you lived in a city, and rhyming off in Greek or in Latin, Caesar is Lord. No big deal. You could cross your fingers behind your back. 
like some MPs do when they're taking their oath. Or you could just go up and you could mutter it. Caesar's Lord, put it down. Simple. And after you did that, it doesn't matter what god you worshipped in ancient Rome. You could worship a monkey. You should. You could worship Zeus. You could worship a banana. You can worship anything you want, as long as once a year you say Caesar is Lord. The only people who were exempt from that were the Jews, who had an ancient religion. Christians weren't exempt. But the problem was that a Christian couldn't say Caesar is Lord, because Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord, and no other. And no one else can take his throne. See, Christians couldn't do it. That was their testimony. Their testimony was that Jesus is Lord and no one else. Their testimony that they were being put to death for here wasn't a, a long, funny, laugh-a-minute story about how adventurous they were in their early days. Or a tragic story all about me and my big problems until I met Jesus and asked him into my heart and life has been fine just since and I'm living my best life now. That wasn't their testimony. That's a modern thing. Their testimony was Jesus is Lord. Jesus is my Lord, and there is no other God beside him. And even if they come and take me away and kill me, Jesus is Lord, and there is no other God. And they did come and take them away. Thousands of them. Tens of thousands of them. Hundreds of thousands of them, right throughout the church age. Christians have been fed to wild animals. Christians have been ripped to shreds in gladiator contests. In Rome, Christians were tied to lampposts and set on fire. They have been drowned. They have been crucified. They have been hung. They have been ripped asunder by animals. They have died for the testimony that Jesus only is their Lord in every age of the church. They died for their testimony. But they were also slain for the word of God. And I wanted to leave that second because it's a challenge for us. And here's the reason. Do you love the Holy Scriptures? Do you love the Bible? Do you love to open your Bible and read it? Nowadays, I don't suppose we open it just so often because I find I'm doing most of my Bible reading on, on a computer these days. I really only bring a physical Bible out when I'm coming to preach. And now you have your Bible on your, on your devices, on your iPad, and on your phone, and on your computer. But that doesn't matter. The Word of God is the Word of God. Do you love the Word of God? Christian poet wrote, we love the word of life, the word that tells of peace, of comfort in the strife, and joys that never cease. 
Well, you see, that's all very well. Here's the real question. Do you love the word of God enough to die for it? Do you? Do I? Because the word of God is the opposite to the sinful culture in which we live. I was listening to a podcast when I was walking the dog last night up the Ree Road, wee country road beside our house. And I put the podcast on and there was an advertisement at the start of it. And it was Pastor Chris Roseborough, one of the Lutherans from America. I'm sure you've heard of him. And he was advertising a conference that he was speaking at recently. And he was talking about Sola Scriptura. And he was saying in his, in his, in his sermon, he was saying the Bible tells preachers that they are to preach the word. Preach the word. That's what we have to do. So if we have only to preach the word, where do we find the verse in the word that talks about evolution? Well, we can't preach that then. Sure we can't. Where do we find the bit that tells you about abortion? We can't find, we can't preach that because it's not there because we have to preach the word. Where do you find the bit that talks about non-binary persons in the scriptures? Well, that's not there either, so we can't preach that either. Where's the bit about women pastors? Well, that's not in the Bible, so we can't preach that either. We can only preach the word and nothing else. And the problem is, and I was listening to him, and I'm thinking this when I got up the road last night, if we preach the word faithfully, we will come into direct conflict with this world. Every time. Not the first time either. In the book of Acts, Peter declared he would obey God rather than men. William Tyndale, the Bible translator, in 1536, executed for the crime of wanting people to read the Bible in English. The covenanting struggle in Scotland was essentially about obedience to God's word. Many gave their lives. Now here's a scenario for you, right here in Temple Patrick, and for us too in, in Ballymacashan and in other churches. What if in a few years' time, what if Rishi Sunak gets his way and introduces his programmable central digital currency and does away with cash? The only way you can put your money into the offering is to use your Britcoins, which would be on your digital wallet on your mobile device. And what if we're here some Lord's Day evening, and I'm up here preaching, and go back down to the door, and a man and another man walk in holding hands. And they say, we want to get married. We want to get married in here. And we say... No, I'm sorry, we can't do that. Because that's contrary to God's word. And they say, we're offended. And they go back down the road and they go to the Equalities Commission or one of these people and they report us because we've refused to marry them. And because we haven't done what the government would want us to do, the government can then, with your digital currency, 
switch off the church as a kind. So the church can't pay its bills anymore. And switch off Colin's a kind. So he can't live in his house anymore because he's an elder. So we switch off his account as well. And we switch off anybody else. And, and before long you find that when you go in to fill up your car in the petrol station, you haven't got any money in your digital wallet. I mean, do you think I'm fantasizing here? Because this has already happened. Happened in Canada to the Canadian truckers because they wouldn't do what the government wanted. The government switched off their bank account, froze their assets, and when they get digital currency instead of cash, this is going to happen. Now, here's the thing. We have to obey the word of God. The word of God tells us that marriage between a man and a woman. Are we going to obey the word of God when it means starvation? Because that's exactly what's happening here in the book of Acts, in the the book of Revelation. They were slain for the word of God. Because the word of God is in direct opposition to the values of this world. It will bring us into conflict with this world. It brought these martyrs into the conflict of this world with this world. And they paid the ultimate price for their love of God's word. Now my challenge to me and to you. Do we love the word of God enough to die for it? Let's look again at the verse. I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain. So we've asked why did they die? We're now going to ask why are they under an altar? Because you see there are no altars in heaven. That's why I explained to you so carefully at the beginning about these people who think they see into heaven. What John is saying here is a vision. It is symbolism. And to find out what that symbolism means, we have to look in the Old Testament. But first, let's go back to the book of Hebrews chapter 10 and see why there are no altars in heaven. So if we turn back to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11... Hebrews chapter 10. Here it is. And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, that's Jesus, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. Verse 14. For by one offering, just one, no more needed, by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. These saints are perfected by Christ. They don't need an altar. There's no more altars. There's no altar in heaven. But what we're seeing here is symbolism. And we have to look for the meaning behind it. The sacrificial system in the Old Testament, remember, was not a means of salvation. Nobody ever got to heaven by killing a cow. Not in any age. 
The worship system in the Old Testament was ordained and instituted by God like our present-day sacraments of baptism and communion. It is to point people to the coming Messiah. Just as baptism and communion point us back to the Messiah who has come. They point to Christ. So every animal that was sacrificed on the altar in Israel pointed to a far greater sacrifice. It pointed to Jesus, who would be the perfect sacrifice and would only need to offer himself as a sacrifice once. So Isaac Watts wrote, Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away its stain. But Christ, the heavenly Lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. So the altar speaks of redemption. There's an altar symbolic of redemption through Christ alone. And notice that they are under the altar. You see, if you were to go into the Jewish temple in the Old Testament, or you were to go into the tabernacle away back in the wilderness, and you were to allow, if you were allowed to walk up to the, to the, to the, the place of sacrifice, not that you would be, but if you were allowed to, you would see the animals being tied to the horns of the altar. You would see the priests coming forward. You would hear the prayers being made. You would see the knife flashing. And you would see the blood gushing out of the animal, pointing to the shedding of blood. And the place beneath the altar would be soaked in blood. And here's these saints, covered in the shed blood of Christ. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. This altar speaks of the sacrifice that was once made. And they are under the altar because the blood has cleansed them from their sins. Now there's an important point here. Martyrdom in and of itself has no saving merit. I think we have to say that. There was a tendency among some of the early church believers, especially the sub-apostolic age, to believe that people who were martyred had gained some kind of merit that they could then pass on to other people. A surplus of merits became the roots of the popish doctrine of purgatory and, uh, and indulgences. Dying for Christ does not make you a Christian. Dying for Christ does not earn you any saving merit. It doesn't guarantee you a reward in heaven. These souls are not in heaven because they were obedient unto death. They're not in heaven because of their bravery. They are in heaven because of Jesus, the Lamb who was slain whose blood has cleansed them from every sin. Let's look at verse 10. See the plea of the martyrs. Because they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood 
on them that dwell on the earth. Now, when you read that, you're instantly met with an incongruity. And here it is. It's a dilemma. These are the martyrs. These are the saints. These are the holy martyrs. Just like we are saints. And these are people who have been obedient to Christ. They have been obedient right to the point of death. They have obeyed the word of God and they've been slain for their testimony and they are followers of Jesus and he is their Lord and they must obey him. Isn't that right? And yet here in this verse, it seems that they are not wanting to obey him in one particular matter. I want you to turn with me in your Bible back to the book of Matthew to the Sermon on the Mount, to John, to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5 and verse 43. Um, remember that they're crying out, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood? They're looking for vengeance. Here's what Jesus said, and we must obey him. Remember he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. You've got to obey Christ. Matthew 5 and 43. You have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbour and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you. Here's the words. And persecute you. We're going to be obedient to Christ. We are to pray for those who persecute us. We're not to seek vengeance. In fact, we're to love them and bless them uh, and we're to pray for them and to, and to, to seek to win them over. So if it's a commandment of Christ that we do not seek vengeance on our persecutors and these souls are those who have been killed because of the word of God and obedience to it, why are they crying out for vengeance? After all, the very first martyr, Stephen, in Acts chapter 7 as he died, looked up into heaven and he cried, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Do not lay this sin to their charge. Well, there's two reasons. The first one is because ultimately the honour is Christ's. Hendrickson, William Hendrickson, the commentator here, explains that though these souls are seeking vengeance not for themselves but for the sake of Christ, I agree with him. When a Christian believer is persecuted by this world, the persecutors are not just persecuting a Christian, they are persecuting Christ. They are persecuting their creator and their sustainer and the one who is the only redeemer of God's elect. I want you to come back with me to Acts chapter 9 and to read again of Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. And it's Acts chapter 9 and verse 5. Just going to do it as quickly as we can. Acts chapter 9 and verse 5. Here, Peter, Paul has fallen to the ground, Saul, at this time. And he hears a voice saying to him, verse 4, Saul, Saul, 
Why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Saul was persecuting the church. He was looking for the church, looking for Christians to put them to death, men and women and children. And yet Jesus says to him, you are persecuting me. They're persecuting Christ when they're persecuting Christians. And these martyred saints are wanting judgment and vengeance for the sake of their Savior and Lord who has been dishonored in their persecution. And also, I think, because judgment is ultimately God's prerogative, the reason Jesus teaches us not to seek vengeance is that vengeance is not ours to give or to enact. That's why Paul quotes Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 35. When he writes in Romans 12 and verse 19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. We're not to seek vengeance on anyone because vengeance belongs to God. And so they're praying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood? Not up to us. We're to love our enemies. It is God who brings vengeance. Let's look at one more thing. The peace of the martyrs in verse 11. And then a white robe. White robes were given to every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. There's one important question we haven't asked yet in all of this passage. And it's this. Why does God allow such things to happen? If I'm faithfully following him, why does God allow me to be persecuted? Aren't there Christians who believe that once you become a Christian, you should be happy all the time and wealthy and have good health? and prosper but yet these Christians have died just for being a Christian why does God allow this to happen why does God allow his own chosen people purchased by the blood of Christ to suffer and die it's a valid question and this verse helps us with the answer here it is because they get a white robe That robe's not theirs by nature. If you see the verse, the robes are given to them. They don't possess them on their own. They don't have these white robes. It is a robe of righteousness. It is a pure white robe given by Christ. And it's given to every single one of his redeemed people. And if you're a Christian tonight, you have this white robe. It is given to you by Christ whose righteousness has been imputed to us. Now, what I mean by the word imputed is that it has been transferred to our account. Remember that our account is well in the red. 
We're, we're sinners and we're, we're in debt because of our sin. And we can never pay that debt. We can never do enough good works ever to, to merit our way to heaven. We are in dreadful debt, and we owe that debt to God. But when Jesus died at Calvary, not only did he take my sin upon himself, but he also cancelled my debt. He wrote off my debt by taking his righteousness, his surplus of righteousness, for he was the only person who ever pleased God that walked on this earth. He was perfect and sinless. God said of him, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And that debt was taken by God. That, that, that surplus of righteousness has been taken by God and has been transferred to my account so that when it comes to judgment day when my account when the books are opened and God goes down my account and he looks at my name and he looks at the debt below it it says cancelled by the blood of Christ written off just as if you'd never seen it And you've got that robe of righteousness. So that when God looks at you, he sees Christ's righteousness. Imputed, transferred legally to your account. Now we can't see that robe of righteousness. Of course we can't. And John's looking at symbols. So he's looking at it symbolically. But you know, when we get to heaven... Our righteousness given to us by Christ will be fully manifest. And here's why. Because in heaven there's no sin. Here we're still grappling with sin. But when we get to glory, there is no sin and no death and no sickness. Our vision is not for this world. Our eyes are in heaven. And look at something else about these saints. Not only have they a white robe that's been given to them, but they have rest. And when we come to Christ and are truly saved, we find true rest. And Jesus, our souls are these. The soul's natural enmity of, with God is at an end. We are at peace with God as Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 being justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ so our souls are at rest already but there is a rest waiting for us in heaven can we have one more reference from Hebrews from Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 9 and you turn to that in your Bible important that we see that these things I'm not making them up as I go along I'm doing what that pastor in America said checking everything and making sure that what we're teaching and preaching is from the word of God so Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 9 there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God for he that has entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us 
labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. Lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There's a rest to come. We're not looking to this world. There's not, there's no rest for the Christian. The Christian has rest in his soul because he's at peace with God. But there's no rest in this world for the Christian. Our eyes are not fixated upon the things of this world. We're not looking for bigger houses and mansions and prosperity. We're looking on to Jesus. Our eyes are fixed in heaven. This world is not our home. The suffering that is of this world is for this world only. And the devil is doing his best to persuade people from trusting Christ and being rescued. It's what we're being warned about in, in, in Hebrews. And we must not keep our eyes on this world. There is eternity ahead when we shall rest from our labors and await God's judgment in his time. And when will that time be? Look at verse 11 again. They should rest for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. There's two types of people there. There's the brethren who will be killed as they would be killed. And there's her fellow servants, that's you and me. All of those who are servants of the Lord. God's judgment will come. When the last martyr has shed his blood and laid down his life for Christ. And when the last elect saint is brought into God's kingdom. Jesus will return. And God willing, next week, we'll see something of that event and the terrible, dreadful judgments that will befall on this earth on that day. And I promise you it won't be nice, but it's something we should know. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.